1: morning, Southeastern family. Uh, as Dr. Aiken uh, acknowledged, uh, for me, 30 years of marriage. You all didn't clap for that. You didn't last time. I understand that this is an institution where you understand the theological. Thank you. I get it. You, you understand the theological framework of covenant community and marriage. And I know you can wax eloquently on that. But my wife is so fine that it is still a mystery to me how she loves me. And, you know, and now we have an empty home, and and it's good. I notice there's still some gray-haired and nay-haireds in the audience. You know, it's good after 30 years. You just love each other. You laugh with each other. Oh, my goodness. This morning, I want to take you to a text of Scripture because I am feeling the weight of being here in this community. And I consider myself a part of this community, but I'm feeling an incredible weight this morning in light of the world that we're living in, in light of the challenges that we're facing. Uh, There's a passage of scripture that really was one of those passages that I first heard in the 80s. And in the 80s, uh, again, a believer, I came to fully understand reality of the gospel and a deeper discipleship in the early, late 70s. But in the 80s, when I first heard this passage preached, it troubled me. Would you turn with me or go to your device to Luke chapter 14? Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the costs Of peace, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is, it is of no use either for the soul or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him here. I realize we've already prayed for this moment, but I want to pray, would you pray with me? Father, Jesus, your word would often say this whenever there was something that was difficult for our minds to grasp. And because Lord, we're looking at a text that our very being, our very brains, just as this original audience, that this text is a very troubling, problem-centered text. We need you to give us ears to hear, and we pray this. May the power of your spirit be at work, not only in my preaching, but may the power of your spirit be at work in our listening. In your name we pray, amen. This text is a a troubling text because uh, for me, when I first heard it, I go, wait a minute, because... uh, I am very thankful that I was discipled, and I noticed you too are being taught and discipled very clearly about what it really means to know Christ and the covenant promise we have of our salvation in Christ. And I was excited that you had a chapel speaker who really dealt with the assurance that we have in our salvation, our eternal security. And, and so when I, when I first came upon this text in my early journey without context, man, was this a troubling text. There are even commentaries that I believe uh, in some ways have gone too far to remove some of the problems that you encounter when you read this text when you when you look at this text it it gives you a very picture of Luke who is telling Theophilus a Gentile of just who Jesus is and and it is this text that Luke again is very clear and we know the other gospels include this language as well but 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 this is the part of the Bible that for me sets uh, Jesus apart from anyone else this is the part of scripture that that reminds us that that the Bible is very unique than than any other book because this is the part of scripture to where the one whom we follow creates problems this is problematic it was problematic for this audience and it's problematic for me and I would suggest to you this morning, and I, I love where we have been again in this year as we've been really again continuing to understand that the brand of this institution is the fact that you're a great commission seminary. That is dangerous. You can say, gee, thanks, Dr. Aiken and staff. But if you're a great commission seminary, then that means that you will have a Christ that creates problems. Because to be about the Great Commission without problems, to be about the Great Commission without the center focus of Jesus, we know historically creates even more problems. Because without the center focus of Jesus, you will make the missteps of some of the missiological missteps in our history of maybe even transporting colonialism rather than the kingdom of God. Jesus here in this text, Is wanting to make sure that his disciples are very clear. He's wanting to make sure that that, that he's very clear. And, And when I looked at this, I almost wanted to take a Jeffersonian approach to this text when I first read it. You know history, Thomas Jefferson, who would go and he rewrote the Bible and took the miracles, the supernatural out, all the things that made him uncomfortable. Man, I wanted to take this out of the text because upon reading it, I was thinking, surely this creates problems. Because the rhythm of Luke is beautiful. I mean, you know that Luke is writing to Theophilus so he'd understand that this is the Son of God. And and, and when I first read Luke and studied Luke in detail, I thought, man, Jesus is, is just incredible. You you see in the beginning of who he is that, that this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. You you see here in the beginning when he's introduced, and, and you see that Jesus, though, is when you read it accurately, is, is in a category all by himself. I mean, God was always he even started off with problems because jesus would be born among a people who had been people who were being conquered by the roman empire of all the time periods to put your son into the world and then you want to give him a, a story a reputation because he's born to a virgin problematic all throughout the scripture you see that there are problems even when he's doing the incredible things of who he is, he, he has a nervousness to disrupt the political establishment. Not just that, but the religious establishment, because he knows that you don't heal on the Sabbath day. And Luke wants to make sure you understand that. He even picks these 12 unlikely men: fishermen. On the surface, why in the world would you want to change the world with fishermen? A tax collector? Are you kidding me, Jesus? You're going to pick somebody working for the man? (laughs) Judas Iscariot? You're going to pick a revolutionary? Jesus, the whole story is problematic even when the disciples are following him and and he feeds the 5,000 and yeah okay this is why we left our nets this is why we left the job 5,000 people wow but then Jesus goes John gospel reminds us and he creates problems unless you eat my flesh drink my blood you can't be my disciple gee thanks problems well now in this text Jesus maintains the rhythm of who he is because in verse 25 great crowds had accompanied them and I know I wonder if Peter and the disciples saying okay we got him again Jesus shh, shh, no 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 don't say anything don't no Jesus says these words if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters. And yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. And I can see the disciples going, what is he saying? Because here's the first problem that is a problem. Jesus creates a problem with your primary identity. What's troublesome in this text It's Jesus is saying there's a whole new way of relationship. There's a whole new reality you're going to walk in. Here's why it's problematic. Because you're talking about Jewish people, the the only identity that they have in a culture where they're being oppressed is family. And we know that's true because we know the Torah, we know Deuteronomy, we we know family is everything. It is the source of life. Jesus, what in the world are you saying here? Why are you challenging people to redefine their very identity? Because the source of who you are, family, is what makes you human. Jesus, hate. You're using an extreme manner to make a point, something that's surely going to capture attention because for this group of people, the only source of comfort that I have is in my identity and who I am as a family. Jesus says, I want to create a problem with your identity. Anyone who does not hate the very status that has been framed, father and mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. He could have included cousins and nephews. Yes, even his own life. He can't be my disciple. Jesus is not contradicting himself because that's what I said. I said, see, the Bible is contradictory. No, well, it looks like that on the surface, but here's what he's doing. He, he really is, as, as some suggest, he's making this comparison, but don't lose the point by saying, oh, he's just making a comparison. No, he, he's saying, look, when it comes to being my disciple, your identity, the way you frame yourself has to change. I mean, think about it this way. You can tell what you love by what you hate. Why do I hate being away from my wife? Because I love her. Why will I hate you if you do something to my wife? And you will see I hate you if if you bother my wife or my kids. Because I love them. Why do I hate death? Because I love life. Jesus is saying here in this text, don't miss this. Yes, even your own life because now your identity, your orientation is something very different. It is in me. I know that your family and your structure and your background gives you a level of privilege. You know, even when we think in our time period today, do you know that some suggest that the family that you're born in is a greater education and a greater indication of your success? The fact that if you had parents who went to college then it is more likely you're going to be successful based on who you were born to we know that from the economic situation of our country we know that because for many of us it's the family that you were born in that is an indication of your wealth and your security and your achievement and leadership here's what he's saying he's saying this anyone who doesn't give up his privilege can't be my disciple i've always been amazed how we have gotten into the privilege argument. Jesus says, let me take care of that right now. Any privilege that you have, if you don't hate it more than loving me, you can't be my disciple. In the very beginning, he says, I want you to assess your identity because I'm asking you to do something because the ultimate goal is for you to be my disciple. And a disciple is a learner, a follower, an imitator. There's a problem here with our identity. That would have been enough. He could have stopped preaching right there. But then he adds, verse 27. Now, there's a problem with a painful identity. It's it's not just, again, my, my identity here that my primary identity is family, but now, Jesus, you want me to have a painful identity. Very simple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is problematic. And the reason why it's problematic, and I need you to shift your brain for a moment and use your imagination, because we have heard this language, we have sung about picking up your cross, we, we know it, we've preached sermons on it, but I, ever, I wonder if we've ever engaged our minds as to what this audience, as to what they heard, because what they heard is something that is fascinating. Because I'm sure they were confused. Pick up your cross. Wait a minute, Jesus. The only people who carried crosses in this culture, in this time period, were people who were guilty people. Pick up your cross cross bearing means that, see, once you pick up the cross, many of you, you know the story that once you pick up the cross, there's no turning back. You're now saying publicly when you're carrying your cross to that place of execution, yes, I am guilty. Yes, I did the crime. There's no going back once you pick up the cross. And when you pick up the cross, if you say that I'm guilty, here's what this means. It means this. Yes, if you carry your cross, I'm not a hero. I am human because I I now have a cross and there's something that I have done wrong I know that many people want to make this lighter and want to go to that other place to pick up your cross means you're carrying your struggles to pick up your cross means you're bearing a difficult no before you get there here's one of the fundamental things of cross-bearing people cross-bearing people says I am guilty wouldn't that be very different from those of us who are disciples If we lived in a world that first acknowledged our guilt before we pointed the fingers at others who are guilty, wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't we stand very different in the conversations of the world today? Because cross bearing people should always understand that I am guilty. That is why we're the ones that should have a keen understanding of our history and not be ashamed of our history. Because we know that we're guilty. That's why we can look firmly and not lose the reality of who we are when someone really talks about the reality of America and its failure because we know America is guilty that's why we don't have to do gymnastics and, and once again and I'm not just saying this because I'm a man of African descent but I've had to make sense of the fact and hopefully you too because I've been disturbed by the fact that many of the theological people that I love have made some decisions that have done damage to communities that we're still living with today I do not let Jonathan Edwards off the hook he was a slave holder that is egregious that is tragic when well, you say James why would you still read sinners in the hands of an angry God because if Jonathan Edwards and if I pick up my cross Christian people who follow him know that there's incredible atrocities that we have done we do not have to be ashamed of the legacy and history of the Southern Baptists wow you haven't told us anything new we're cross bearing people we know that humans can do some audacious tragic things Donald Trump was right when he said there were good people in Charlottesville. Absolutely. There's always been good people who have done evil things. In the 200 years of history, it was a good church. They gave theological justification to many of the social issues that we have today. Absolutely, we all know cross-bearing people in this conversation that it's good people who have done horrific things. That is why we pick up our cross. That is why what makes us different. We're not defensive when the blogs come out. We're not defensive of what the media says to us. We don't have to argue with CNN and CNMSB. Absolutely, we're guilty. We carry our cross. But we know that there's something strange about us because even though the cross, you carry it, it leads to even a stranger place, it leads us to death. And all throughout Scripture, there's something incredible when He says, Pick up your cross and follow me. Because all throughout Scripture, there's something that is powerful that happens when God's people, when God's covenant reality, when we embrace death. We know that when we read our Bible. Noah in Genesis 7, when he goes into an ark and God shuts the door, you know what Noah's doing? He's embracing death. Heck, he doesn't know if that boat's gonna float. It easily could have been his coffin, could have been his. Grave, but guess what? I'm willing to go be and look shut in with all those animals. Good night. I mean, I can't do snakes, I can't do elephants, but but you know what? Noah's embracing Noah is picking up a preview of his cross that salvation comes in death, and he's willing to be in a closed ark while there's a flood going on. He could have been drowned, but he knows that it's in death, it's where there is life. Our very Bible calls us to embrace death and the truth of our reality. Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 when he's going up to the mountain with Isaac. Isaac said, hey dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, boy, God will provide. And you know what the Bible says they're doing in Genesis chapter 22? They're going to worship. Abraham knows that in death there is life. When you pick up your cross and follow him, Jesus is actually calling us to something that is a key to life even though we know that there's death. You know that. You know the Sunday school story uh, in Judges chapter 16 Samson what does the Bible say he kills more in his death when he says let me die with the Philistine oh Samson thank you for giving us a preview of picking up the cross because there is life in death no wonder Jesus said if anyone gonna come after me he gotta pick up his cross Shadrach Meshach and Abednego they say bring death on we ain't bowing down to you and they go into the fiery furnace not expecting to come out what were they doing they're saying there's life in death yes there's a problem it's what makes us different as we engage in cultural issues we say yes we're guilty yes we've benefited from privilege Yes, our church has done horrific things, but praise God, we get a chance to pick up our cross and die and believe that there can be life, not be defensive. But then thirdly, you gotta gain perspective concerning the price. And in these next few verses, Jesus gives an illustration. He gives an illustration of building a tower that, uh, in verse 28, who's going to build a tower without counting the cross? It's a problem. Because when you lay laid a foundation not able to finish, you'll be mocked. But then I love verse 31 of what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet the one who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while he's a, 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 the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. You know, when I first read that, I thought, yeah, you got to count. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Let me read this slowly. You mean 10,000 going against 20,000. See, Jesus is saying, listen, you, you, you've got to understand, you've got to gain perspective concerning the price. Because often when you and I decide that we're going to be a disciple of Christ, you're going to be outnumbered one of my favorite plays, I got a chance to see this play. It was Alexander. I saw it on Broadway. I, yeah, I'm bragging. Uh, I got to see Hamilton on Broadway. Uh, I'm really bragging. I sat on the second, in the second row. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, listen, if you've never seen it, you need to sit or listen and listen to the soundtrack. But there was one moment in the play where there's a song between Washington and Hamilton, and, and, and Washington said these words, he says, and it was during the beginning of when they're, they're engaged in war. And, and so he says, uh, trying to get Hamilton, trying to get trying to recruit Hamilton he says this we're outgunned, we're out man. we're outnumbered we're out playing. we gotta make an all-night stand and then he said yo I need a right-hand man and I almost wanted to stand up in the play and say, you're absolutely right when you're outnumbered, you're outman. You need a right-hand man. I got good news for you. God calls us, here's the problem. Count the cost, but you're gonna be outnumbered and outman. and be very careful whenever you try to make the numbers match. Be very careful trying to orchestrate power in your own way. Be very careful making political and social decisions because somehow some authority can protect your Christianity. Those of us who know our history know that that might have been the failure when Constantine decided that he would make things comfortable. Be very careful how much you rely on political power because Jesus says, count the cost when you're outnumbered, you're outman." and yes, he needs a right-hand man. I got good news for you. We have a right-hand man. When Stephen looked up, he saw Jesus standing up at the right hand of God. Good news for you. We can be outnumbered, outman. Yes, it's problematic when you pay the price, but we've got the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who's lifted up at the right hand of God. I almost wanted to stand up in the play and say, hey, Washington, Jesus is your right hand man. (laughs) But if you don't do this, you can't be my disciple. Even renounce. All that you have. And finally, this last verse is one that I'd always skipped over. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, now we have always, I think, and I've misunderstood this verse because I've taken this verse and put it in my American framework. Because the way I think of salt here is, I typically think of salt in terms of seasoning, and and we've heard many sermons, and sure, it can be applied that it's a preserving agent. That's what salt does. But but it's deeper than that. The picture, the context that he uses here is that salt, if it's lost its saltiness, is no useful for the soil for the manure pile there's some country people in here you feeling me right now <laughs> oh but it'll help you with your interpretation what Jesus is talking about is this, is that after all that I have said to you, when you look in the last, if you count the cost, if you pick up your cross, if you, if, you, if you pay the price, then understand something. You love me more than father and mother, then here's what happens. I've done that in your life, so you will have a distinct purpose. You're to be salt. Salt was one of the most valuable commodities in this day, and absolutely it was a preserving agent, but it was preserving even deeper than what we realize Salt would be used, and Dr. Anthony Bradley wrote an article on this, and there are other commentaries that talk about the agricultural nature of salt, but I knew that growing up in Barco, North Carolina, my dad, again, being a person who, again, my grandfather was a farmer, and my dad, we had nothing but fresh vegetables. We had four acres of garden. Listen, I never ate a canned food until I went to college, and I love frozen dinners to this day because I grew up with fresh stuff all the time, but my dad had this moment when he would get excited, Excited with the garden. And one of the things you had to do with a garden is you had to throw down fertilizer. Guess what fertilizer was? It, was? it was this compound chemical that was mixed with salt. Jesus says, you ought to be salt. Your purpose is, is is it is of no use. If it's lost in saltiness, here's the problem: it's no use for the soul. Jesus says listen here's here's the problem the problem is this I want your life to be useful for the soul I want you to have a broad impact because what salt does is it changes the whole system of the garden the problem with salt is it isn't enough to just grow a few vegetables but salt says we're going to change the whole system what am I trying to say if you're going to be a great commission seminary one of the problems we have in our current framing of our Christianity is we tend to only think of individuals who did you win for?" For Christ rather than what systems did you change for Christ God says here's the problem I didn't call you here just to have a few people place their trust in Jesus don't get me wrong evangelism is critical and important but our evangelism what Jesus is laying out you're to be sought to change the whole soul see I get a concern when we get into an argument about Christian music God says you're to be salt to change the whole music industry. Because here's what salt does it grows something new. He says, here's the problem. Here's, again, all of this is so. You can be salt, but if you're not growing anything new, then you've lost your saltiness, you've lost your purpose. Then there's one more thing he says that was strange manure pile? Really, Jesus? Because here's what is also interesting that salt was used for. Salt was used to preserve manure. (laughs) Okay, wait a minute, James. Please don't make that link. Does that mean that you want us, Jesus is challenging us, that we're to be a part of preserving manure? Manure. And you know what he says, if you're not salt, it won't even be useful for the manure pile. He, he lifts up the power of manure. My dad understood the power of manure because the whole garden would grow. When, when we got chicken manure, he was like, we got manure. And I'm like, gosh, I got stinky. But my dad understood. That manure is what was going to change the whole composition of the soul, And here's what Jesus is saying. Your purpose is to change the whole composition of the soil. You're to keep the manure for rottening. Because I even have a purpose for that which everyone else would throw out. It still has a beautiful purpose purpose. Can I say to you, that's the God that we serve. We're even to preserve those things that everyone says is waste, but we've got a redemptive Savior that says, I have a purpose for that, but you won't experience that purpose unless you and I know that God says, Purposefully, I take that what you think is a waste and it is thrown away. We know that's true because we know later in Luke that he goes on a hill outside Golgotha, a hill which everyone else would think is a waste. He dies on a cross which everyone thinks was a waste and you and I are preserved because Jesus is willing to be ripped open, not even recognizable, willing to be thrown away. Why? Because he knows there's going to be life for you and me and he doesn't just change us individually. He changes the whole world by being what those whom rejected becomes the cornerstone. It's all throughout our Bible of who Jesus is. And what I love about this is maybe we don't understand the purpose and power because all of this text is pointing to this. You can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple. Why would I pick up my cross and follow him? Because I won't have Jesus. Why in the world will I reject my identity? Because I won't have jesus because jesus brings clarity to everything maybe we need the rhetorical genius of the black preacher to give us gospel clarity Because in the African-American preaching tradition, there's an intellectual way of helping audiences who could not read in the 20s and 30s. And they use a rhetorical device so that people would understand something. And that's why you would hear preachers close their sermon by saying this about Jesus who caused problems. He's the seed of the woman. He's the Passover lamb. He's the lion of Judah. He's the crimson cord. He's the bright morning star. He's Emmanuel, he's the Christ, he's the Logos, he's the Lord, he's Master, he's Savior, he's Son of God, he's Son of David. He's the new Adam, second Adam, last Adam, light of the world, King of the Jews. He's the ruling, reigning, resurrected one because the one who caused problems is the one who gives us everything. And as I close, I heard one preacher borrow your through lines from DJ Khalid and DJ Khaled. And you may not know DJ Khaled, and don't Google him because there's some things that won't be too good. But, but DJ Khaled did get this one thing right. He says, all I do is win, win, no matter what. And every time I step in the building, everybody hands go up. And they stay there. And they stay, yeah. And they stay there, up, down, up, down. Because all I do is win, win, win. And if you're going to put your hands in the air, make them stay there. Can I just say to you, yes, Jesus gives us problems. But we know those problems lead to a resurrected ruling Savior. And all we do is win, win, win. And hands go up. Can I say this to you as well? We will need to be the generation to define where our identity comes from. Our patriotism must take second place to our theocentric reality. We must understand we have to be the genius to make sure that people don't get their identity in a lost cause because we know the only monument that should remain is the cross and where there is life. This is the generation that will create mystery because call us what you want to call us because our life and hope is in Jesus Christ. We will pick up our cross. We will love him more than any other social structure we have. We will count the cost and bring on the manure because there's something beautiful that comes from the ugly because all we do is win, 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 win. Now let's go fulfill the Great Commission. So it's in the name of Jesus, give us ears to hear, but give us the courage to respond in your name. Amen.
0: Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us.